BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Ugh, amen. Every single time. Every, every time. Every time. It I, never fails. That That's what we talk about. Well, now that I'm thinking about it, I can't think of one time that we didn't. I know. Look wow. at us. Look at us. Look at us. Look at us. Well, today is a special day. Happy Thanksgiving, if you're listening on release day. In America. In America. If you're from somewhere else, we love you too. But yeah. we're on vacation, which is amazing. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> at the time that this is happening, we will not be at work. That's right. The time that this is airing, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. We will not be working. Yeah. So hopefully if you are in America and you're traveling from family function to family function, Hopefully you are enjoying your time with uh, listening to an episode or two while you're driving around. Uh, But the all-important question. Yes. What are you drinking today? Well, I am owned by the seasonal drink monster. (laughs) I'm a faithful servant of the seasonal (laughs) drink monster. I got a toasted white mocha from Starbucks. Nice. And those little cranberry sprinkles on top with the little crunchies. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yes. Yeah, Starbucks for four months out of the year gets <laughs> all of your affection and much of our money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, it's so weird because I'm the shop small lady. Like I love supporting like local mm-hmm. businesses and all of that. But four months out of the year, I am absolutely under the control <laughs> of seasonal <laughs> drinks. And Starbucks just, it's just... They make still, it so easy to just pull it, pull up and yeah. grab your little thing and then get out of there. They sure do. My goodness. Yeah. Oh, Support so local. You're, you're drinking the toasted white mocha. Yep. And then uh, because we are recording for the first time in a long time in the middle of the day, mm-hmm. uh, I have a different drink than usual. I'm drinking uh, an iced coffee that you made for me, but I have no idea what's in it. Do you want me to tell you? Yeah. Okay, so it's Stokes Iced Coffee mm-hmm. with oat milk cream, uh, the vanilla variety, and just a little dash of cinnamon sugar, some whipped cream, mm. and ice, of course. Yeah, it is very good. This is a tasty little little uh, homemade coffee that costs way less than your drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole jug of Stokes Iced Coffee costs less. Than one. Than one Starbucks <laughs> drink. <laughs> oh, man. Well... Before we get started, do you have a feel-good fact for us today? I do. So baby chicks can communicate with their mother hens while they are still in the egg, and they can warn their fellow chicks of danger lurking outside of their shells. Really? Yeah. Huh. So there's like some little unknown chick language yeah. that they speak in the egg. Through Between eggs. Yeah, like the eggs like all know what's up. It's like the cartoons where the yeah. eggs are all like... You know, dancing around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that's actually, like, a real thing. Maybe it's not quite as, like, animated, but... That's so funny. Yeah. Huh. 
Yep. Look at that. That's that was cute. just kind of like that cute. That is a feel-good fact. It's a cute, it's a cute fact. Like brethren. Yes. <laughs> There's danger afoot. There's danger. <laughs> yes. Quick, hide. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Darn it. We, we are. <laughs> we are hiding. We, what do we do? <laughs> All right. Well, why don't you go ahead and uh, show us what you got here this this week, my love. All right. So for this week's story, I thought it would be a good time to share about an incredibly weird collection of true stories involving tuberculosis, more than 100 years worth of vampire panic in New England, and the way that the public chose to handle the frenzy. I mean, I'm not really sure what to say to adequately prepare you for how weird today's story is, but I guess just hold on, Kev, because this one's a doozy. There it is. There it is. That's the best way to say it. That's the best way. That's how you prepare us, is by telling us it's a doozy. Yes. So this is kind of like a story within a story within a few more stories, so so to speak. Mm -hmm. The main figure in today's story was sadly only a focal point of the particular scandal because a greater cultural problem that was happening in the region for over 100 years. Oh, wow. She was just kind of caught up in the crossfire, I suppose. And she was far from the only person to undergo the bizarre treatment that was inflicted on her. So I'm going to give you a few broad explanations of like specific factors of mm-hmm. these events. And then I'll make a few stops at some of the weird moments that occurred during this time. So before we travel back in time a few hundred years, let's take a brief stop in Connecticut in the year 1990. Oh, okay. So in Griswold, Connecticut in 1990, a group of kids were playing near a hillside gravel mine. During this time, they accidentally discovered what they believed was a grave. They all ran home and told their parents, who seemed to not believe them, until one of the kids brought a skull home as proof. Hmm. A, like a skull. Like a human skull. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So the police were informed that at the very least, there were likely human remains in the area where the children regularly played. So police went. <laughs> they, don't, and, they don't play there anymore. We don't let them play there anymore. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So police went and checked it out and discovered that there were multiple graves here. At first, investigators were concerned that these graves may have belonged to more victims of a serial killer by the name of Michael Ross. So they initially marked the area off as a crime scene. Hmm. So quick content warning. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because this isn't the focal point of today's story. But when I looked this guy up, I thought I should tell like a spark notes version of his crimes. Okay. So these crimes include child abuse murder, and sexual assault. And so if you don't want to hear that, just skip forward a minute or two. Mm. So Michael Ross was born in 1959, and he was the oldest of four children. His childhood home and home life were dysfunctional, to say the least. Having been abandoned and beaten by his mother on and off for pretty much the entirety of his childhood. Very sad. Mm. So despite displaying antisocial behavior and some other red flag behaviors as a child, he was actually very smart. He graduated high school and went to college at Cornell to study economics. It was during this time that he began stalking women. The stalking escalated to sexual assault and eventually escalated even further to murder. So between 1981 and 1984, Michael Ross would be responsible for the rape and murders of eight girls and women ranging from the ages of 14 to 25. Mm. In New York and Connecticut. Oh my gosh. Inflicting terror in the region during those years. Eventually, he was caught, and though he confessed to all eight murders and seven counts of rape, he was only convicted of four of them. He was sentenced to death on July 6, 2001. He was set to be the first inmate in the whole of New England to be executed via the death penalty in 45 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was some back and forth if he was mentally competent to undergo the death penalty, but he was deemed competent, and he was put to death via lethal injection in May of 2005. So that guy sucked, Mm. but it does make sense that like they knew that there were at least eight murders, even though he was convicted of four Mm. of them, they were concerned that maybe these bodies that they had discovered belonged to more victims. So he was assaulting 14 to 25 year olds and he was himself only in his like mid early twenties. It seems like it. Yeah. Cause I mean, he was, it was when he went to college. Right. Yeah. Oh, oh. Over the course of like three or four years. Wow. Which that's, like that's like a pretty high body count in yes. such a short period of time. Yeah. That's I don't like yeah. Don't yeah. Like that at all. So I tell that just to illustrate yeah. w- why they're concerned. There's there's made a cultural sense. thing happening around 
the main story, and this is one of those cultural things happening. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. So once investigators took a closer look at the remains, they realized that the bones appeared to have been way older than just a few years old. Oh. They brought in a Connecticut state archaeologist by the name of Nick Bellantoni to come and take a closer look. It didn't take much time at all for Bellantoni to determine that the hillside contained a family-style grave containing the remains of 29 people, most of them children. Oh. So this style of burial was very common in the 17th and 18th century, and the remains were laid to rest in what's called the Yankee style, which is when bodies were laid in basic clothing, no jewelry or anything like that, in plain wood coffins with their arms folded across their chests. And they were in like a family, like what was a crypt at one point. Oh, okay. Wow, that's interesting. Yes. So all of the remains were laid to rest that way besides one. The body in burial number four. So within this burial site, two bodies had been laid to rest in stone graves, and burial number four was one of them. Hmm. After they were able to get into the stone crypt, they made a shocking discovery. So the first body in the stone tomb was laid normally, but the second one had some definite differences. Hmm. When investigators first saw part of the body, they noticed that the feet were in perfect anatomical position. But when the rest of the debris was cleared away, it was apparent that this corpse had been beheaded. Oh. The rest of the bones had been rearranged, and the way that they were left was almost in the shape of like a skull and crossbones. What? Yeah, like the the head was moved, Uh and other bones were rearranged in a very odd way. Yeah. Which is very weird. So after some more analysis and examination of the remains, it was determined that certain things like damage done to certain bones of the body were done around five years after this person had died. So the other bodies were removed from the gravesite so that they could be reburied elsewhere. Mm -hmm. While the skeleton that they nicknamed JB, which is the one that was in the very strange position, went to undergo more testing at the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Washington, D.C., Historians and experts of all kinds came into the gravesite to have a look when suddenly one of the professionals asked if any of the others had ever heard of the Jewett vampires. Oh. Yes. So, yeah, that's a, it seems like a strange question. Yes. Yes. So in a nearby city, uh, Jewett City, Connecticut, it was learned that in 1854, due to droves and droves of deaths occurring, people had believed that vampires were responsible for coming out of the graves and killing people in town. So to combat this, townsfolk dug up the remains of the suspected vampires and then did a series of, uh, I don't really know what to call them. I'm going to say procedures. Okay. On the remains in order to stop the vampires from taking more lives. Wow. Believe it or not, Jewett City was not the only place that this was happening, and 1854 was far from the only year that this had been happening in the whole New England region. Hmm. So now let's head back in time. Okay. So we're going to start by talking about some of the beliefs and superstitions surrounding death in early New England, as well as some practices surrounding death. Unfortunately, back in the early colonial era, death was an all-too-common occurrence. Hmm. Mortality rates for children and mothers were extremely high. Somewhere around one in eight women would die in childbirth or shortly after, and many children wouldn't even make it to the age of five. Oh, my gosh. I read about one family who had eight of their 15 children die before the age of two. (sighs) Awful. Just awful. That's so crazy. It's crazy to think that that was so normal and commonplace at one point Mm -hmm. in time. Yeah, I didn't write about this, but there was like a a cultural norm that there was like a detachment that people made with their kids until they hit a certain age. Hmm. Like they would call them things like like it or just he or she, Uh and they wouldn't call them really by name. And their gravestone epitaphs would be like very cold Mm -hmm. almost. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, it seems just looking at it for what it is, like a coping mechanism. Yeah. Like, don't let yourself get attached because they're probably going to die in infancy. Like, just very somber. Yeah. You know? Wow. So, yeah, I did not write about that, but I thought probably good to include it. So, disease, animal attacks, exposure, poor nutrition, lack of physical activity, depending on your social status, etc., were always lingering threats in early New England. Superstitions were also very common. Some superstitions were brought over from across the pond, and others came onto the scene once settlers had been in America for some amount of time. 
In early New England, for example, it was considered a bad omen to come across a white cat hmm. instead of a black one. So nobody knows exactly why that is. Yeah. <laughs> the people have kind of debated, but sure. yeah. So there were also many superstitions surrounding death and what happens immediately after death. One thing that was extremely common was the belief that standing at the foot of the bed of a dying loved one would actually block their spirit from being able to exit this life and head into the next one. Hmm. So people would not stand at the foot of the bed. Windows and doors would be left open so that the spirit of a freshly deceased person could find their way into the next life without any hindrance as well. Hmm. In order to prevent the spirit of a loved one from getting trapped in a mirror, it was the job of the oldest living relative to either cover the mirrors or turn them around until the body had been buried. But it was imperative that the person turning the mirror didn't look into it and see their own reflection. Otherwise, they'd die within six months. What? Which, like, we can talk about that for hmm. a second. That was the superstition, and that must have come from some sort of evidence. Right. I would guess. And if you think about how high mortality rates were, like, it was probably more likely they would die within six months anyways. And so right. let's blame the mirrors. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. It's it, it's it's funny because all of these superstitions, they play like, I don't know, it, it's it makes you feel like these people are unintelligent, uneducated mm -hmm. buffoons. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and I mean, I guess you, you could make an argument sort of that that's the case, but it's way less about that and way more about folklore. And tradition. Yeah, actually really what it is. Mm -hmm. Like people have traditions. This is what we've always done. This is how we do it. Mm -hmm. And probably even I would I would venture to guess that there were plenty of skeptics, but you don't hear about the skeptics because they just kind of roll with it and go with it. Right. You know, that's that's I'm making a, a speculation, obviously. But right. Be I would be just shocked to find out that everyone was 100% superstitious yeah. about this all the time. <laughs> you you are correct. Yeah. You are definitely correct. We'll kind of actually get into that a little bit oh, okay. as this goes, which is good. So there are tons of super creepy and weird superstitions around mirrors throughout history that I feel like I could and probably should dedicate a whole episode <laughs> to at some point. There are a lot of interesting stories about mirrors. So anyways, bodies that were being removed from homes which people usually died in their own homes back right, at this time. Right. So bodies being removed from their homes would have to be removed feet first to prevent the deceased from making eye contact with anyone in the room that they died in, which helped prevent another person from being cursed to die soon. Hmm. The oldest child in a family of a recently deceased person in more rural areas would be tasked with turning beehives around and informing the bees that someone had died. If they didn't do this, the fear was that the bees would come for the remaining family members. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> there was also the mm. practice of inhaling the final breath of a dying person, which is just an all-around terrible idea. That is an terrible. That's a fascinating thought, though. Of yeah. Inhaling their final breath. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of poetic in a weird, creepy way. Yeah. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and while these are bizarre... I mean, these are weird. These strange practices are far from the most unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> as far as ceremonies surrounding death go, there was a lot of like pomp and circumstance that was super different from how we handle death today. Mm. It's pretty common knowledge that a lot of people would pose for painted portraits and then eventually for photographs with recently deceased loved ones. I don't know how much you know about that, but that was a oh. very common practice. People would stand for like, if it was a painting, mm -hmm. they would stand for like, hours and hours and hours with their deceased loved one for a photo. Cause that was really like their only opportunity to wow. get a photo with their family. Yeah. Um, or a portrait, I suppose. And then eventually it turned into photographs. And so you can hmm. actually like, those are not hard to find. They're everywhere on the internet of people posed with a recently deceased loved one. Yeah. Before, uh, uh before they get all stiff and, mm -hmm. and yeah. I mean, rigor had definitely set in in a lot of them and you can tell, which oh. is like a little bit, like wow. a little bit morbid. There's something very, yeah. there's something very understandable about doing that. Yeah. That practice is, while it feels weird now, it makes sense mm -hmm. for the time that it was, you know, if that's the really yeah. the only memento you have of that loved one besides something that belonged to them, but you can still like look back and see their face. Yeah. It makes sense. Like, and I can sort of sympathize doesn't feel like the right word, but I can sort of sympathize with the thought process behind yeah, that. Yeah. It's just weird now. It It is definitely, 
it's it's weird in a way that we we just I don't know. We just would never do that today. I guess maybe I shouldn't say never. I'm sure there's people out there that would maybe. Think there's that's a, a lot of idea. like modern death ceremonies that have practices like that still. Interesting yeah. To me. Wow. We're just so far removed from it. Yeah. It's not common enough to hear about it regularly right. at this point or experience it for yourself. Yeah. 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 Well, so, and we have so many options now to pull, dig up a picture of somebody. Right. Versus back then it was a, probably a small fortune to Mm -hmm. get a painting done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. So funerals were often more like festivals that would sometimes last for several days. Considering the fact that most settlers and their descendants held on dearly to beliefs surrounding spirituality and ideas about the afterlife. When you kind of combine those things with folklore from various countries that settlers were coming from with new beliefs being established as time marched on in the U S you get all sorts of beliefs and practices that sort of mingle and form new ones. Hmm. So I feel like that is really at the heart of this entire story. So the funeral festivals were very interesting. To invite someone to one of these events, it was customary to send something of value as an invitation, such as a pair of gloves or jewelry. Hmm. Sometimes these items would be passed around at funerals or left on the grave as well. In one of the books I read for this story, they said that the cost of liquor that was supplied to funeral guests was higher than the total of every other aspect of the ceremony. Oh, wow. Adults and even children would drink for like the whole ceremony and plenty of time thereafter. Hmm. So children kind of took it as a rite of passage to get to be the pallbearer at a funeral. Mm -hmm. And they would pass bottles of alcohol around between the pallbearers to take drinks. I mean, for like the whole duration of the ceremony and after. Wow. Which is really interesting. Hmm. It's funny because I feel like I remember um, my first time being a pallbearer um, and I think I was 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's not necessarily like a thing that we do today, but that. uh, What's the word? Almost like a camaraderie. Yeah. Well, and it's like just like an unspoken thing now where it's like the first time being a pallbearer to contrast it a little bit. It's kind of like the first time you're asked to be in someone's wedding. Sure. Like, Oh, okay. Like this is, I'm, I'm now mature enough to do this thing. You know, mm-hmm. before I was the ring bearer because I was an eight year old boy. Mm-hmm. Now I'm 15 and I can handle being a junior groomsman or whatever, right. you know, or yeah. an actual groomsman yeah. depending on the wedding. So being a pallbearer is kind of one of those same sorts of things. We just don't necessarily treat it with the same, a degree of of pomp, I guess, would yeah. be a good way of putting it. Yeah, and for we sure. also don't let our thirteen year old pallbearers <laughs> drink the liquor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not a thing. But like, also like drinking at a funeral, that's not that abnormal. I mean, the we have I have a huge family. Yeah. Unfortunately, with a huge family comes a lot of loss mm-hmm. at some point, and you know, you go to these funerals. I've never seen anybody taking swigs from a flask, but like. That isn't, historically speaking, that's not an uncommon practice, but it is interesting to think of this as being like a big party Mm -hmm. that everybody just drinks at for several days in a row. Right. And throughout the ceremony. Yeah. That that wouldn't happen as often around today's not Not in today. Not today times. (laughs) Yeah. The pallbearers swigging down some liquor and then- Carrying it out, yeah. Casket. <laughs> yeah, that would be a little strange today. A little bit different. <laughs> Just a little. So I have some more death practice stuff that I'll be sharing as we keep moving through the episode, but now it's time to talk about one of the most devastating causes of death at the time. Mm. Tuberculosis. Oh, yeah. So tuberculosis was a big deal in early New England and beyond. For a long time, tuberculosis was a death sentence. Mm. The disease itself dates as far back as the Neolithic era, and there are mentions of it under various names documented all over the world throughout history. Hmm. It's interesting to read and see how germ theory and the study of disease has like progressed throughout mm-hmm. human history. For a time, it was believed that the disease was hereditary instead of contagious, and people believe that winds caused the disease, for example. Huh. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Like yeah. They were trying to figure out why are people getting sick. Mm-hmm. And so they went with what they thought made the most sense. If a whole family is getting a disease, then it must be passed down from the parents, must be inherently genetic Hmm. as opposed to something that can pass from host to host, you know, Mm -hmm. 
which is interesting. So in Hungary during the medieval times, it was believed that the illness was caused by a dog-like demon that was slowly eating the lungs of the victims. And they also believed that the cough was actually the demon barking. Oh my, wow. That's, wow. Okay. In 1720, Benjamin Martin, an English physician, concluded that the disease was caused by microorganisms known as animacula. The animacula would multiply and thrive inside of the body of their host. He went on to propose that perhaps sleeping in bed with someone with the disease, Mm -hmm. sharing food or drinks, or talking too closely to someone with symptoms could in fact be responsible for spreading the disease. Hmm. His theory was rejected, and it would be 162 years before his theory was actually proven to be true by bacteriologist Robert Cook in March of 1882. Hmm. 162 years before he proposed some pretty, what we would consider to be basic germ theory now. Right. That was like, they all thought he was crazy. Oh, yeah. It took forever to get there. Yeah. I even think about uh, like the, the Florence Nightingale uh, mm-hmm. like the history around all that, that she's saying we should do this and try this. Yeah. And I think it was even before her, there were some doctors that proposed hand washing in, right. in hospitals. And it was like this crazy, that'll never work. We're never doing that. And, and maybe they- <laughs> you shouldn't like go from handling a cadaver to delivering a baby without washing your hands, like right. that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how really germ theory hasn't matured to, the degree that we actually keep things clean mm-hmm. until the last like hundred years. I know. Which is crazy to Very think about. Very weird to think about it that way. Well, and so what I'm really saying with all of this is that germ theory and the study of disease really just couldn't keep up with the diseases that they were right. trying to find a reason for. Right. And so people were just grasp the the book I read it said grasping at straws. Mm-hmm. That is dead on. They yeah. were trying to come up with anything that could make sense. And considering microorganisms yeah. really yeah. sounded crazy. It yeah. sounded crazier than a demon eating your lungs. Which that's so funny. Wow. That sounded crazier than a demon eating your lungs. Mm-hmm. What a, what a strange time to be alive. <laughs> I know. So although it went by many names, it was referred to as consumption at the time of today's story. Mm. Consumption was a far reaching, devastating disease throughout the 18th and 19th centuries And doctors really didn't understand it or know how to treat it. Hmm. The disease first hit New England in full force sometime around the 1730s. By the time 1800 rolled around, nearly one-fourth of deaths in the northeastern United States were due to consumption. And this would continue through the remainder of the century. Wow. 25% of all deaths were caused by consumption. I'm trying to think of the things that are like... um they kill the most people today. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure it's uh heart, heart failure is, yeah. the, is the number one thing. Something, In America, something cardiac. Something, yeah. yeah. And um, it's one of those, like, I still don't think that it's 25% of all deaths. Yeah. I don't I, know. I'd have to look at that. <laughs> I'm stat, pretty sure like, it's crazy. still under 10% of all deaths or something like that. Like it's, it's not so far reaching that you should expect someone from your family is going to die from this. Right. So that's crazy to think about. People are dying from consumption. Is that what they called it back then? Mm -hmm. People are dying from consumption and they just anticipate I'm going to know somebody. It's kind of the same thing, I guess, is like at this point in history, everybody knows somebody who has gone through cancer Mm -hmm. or multiple people even Mm -hmm. versus 40 years ago, you maybe knew someone who knew someone who had cancer. Right. And so it's, it's, I guess it's as far reaching as that, except for even, it doesn't sound like cancer is even as uh, much of a death sentence as consumption was. Right. Which, yeah. So to live in fear of one disease, I guess the closest we can think of is a recent pandemic. Right. To live in fear of a certain disease to say, well, that that's likely going to kill somebody that I know. Right. You know, that's, crazy to think about right it's weird because i feel like with with covid it was like the fear of what if it killed somebody that i know yeah that's Um, true and that's a little bit different than what they had but with them (laughs) it was like this will definitely yeah and i mean i'm i'm not trying to get into a whole discussion about about covid but it is just crazy we can actually relate yeah in a way 
to say yeah. one specific disease is responsible for so much devastation. Right. And we're not that far removed from that same feeling of being connected. Right. And a few years ago, we wouldn't have been able to understand that, mm-hmm. which is crazy that we've gone through something recently enough to say, oh, yeah, I, I now have uh, a, a comprehension of that feeling a little bit. Right, right. Okay, so if you came down with consumption, there was an 80% chance that you would never recover. Wow. So let me paint a picture of tuberculosis as it lived in rain during this time. Symptoms of consumption included fever, night sweats, breathlessness, pain in the sides or shoulders, a pale complexion, and a violent cough. Sometimes so violent that someone suffering from the illness would spit up blood when they coughed. Mm. It was as though anyone suffering from the illness was indeed being consumed by it. Yeah. Which is how it got its name. It was also referred to as the Great White Plague Mm. because it caused like a really pale complexion. Wow. Various remedies and attempts to treat the disease would arise with various degrees of success. Some of the stranger treatment plans included breathing in warm sea air, ingesting human breast milk, cold baths, seaweed under the pillow, swallowing live baby frogs before eating breakfast, sleeping somewhere that you could breathe in the breath of a cow, drinking a tea made out of toad ashes, riding horses for designated periods of time depending on your age, relocating to highlands, and many more odd things. Hmm. So... I can appreciate the efforts to cure a disease that seemed to be incurable, but dang, like <laughs> how could any of these had, you know, how could they have made somebody say, ah, oh, yes, this will do. This is the you know? one. This is all you need to do. I've, it's, it's, it's just kind of funny. Like people used to throw leeches on people to yeah, kill them and yeah. it's like, bloodletting. I, I and guess. Like, yeah. It's like, I guess I understand why you would think maybe that would potentially help, <laughs> but, uh, after the first time of it not working, I'd be like, oh, that probably isn't going to actually work. Okay, never mind. Let's do something different. And mm-hmm. I guess well, that's probably how they got so many. Right. Is because it didn't work. They tried something else. It didn't work. Try something else. And they just kept on trying things. It's very much like trying to figure out what was causing the disease. Yeah. They're grasping at any straw they can to try and make sense of this thing that's mm-hmm. wreaking such havoc. And then in the same vein, they're grasping at straws to figure out how to get yeah. rid of it. Because yeah. if you don't know what's causing it, how are you ever going to figure out what actually right. treats it? Yeah, that's true. So medical science just didn't didn't have any of that that we have today. Well, hang on, Ken. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but no other proposed treatment plans were quite as controversial as the implementation of vampirism. Oh. So before I explain that, let's talk about George Brown and his family in Exeter, Rhode Island. Okay. So the Browns were well aware of the consumption epidemic, and unfortunately, they were not exempt from its havoc. Hmm. The Brown family was comprised of George and Mary Eliza. They were the parents. And then the children, Mary Olive, Mercy Lena, and Edwin. Hmm. They usually referred to Mercy as Lena. So that's how I'm going to refer to her for the rest of the episode, Okay, just so everyone knows. In 1883, the Browns were face-to-face with the dreaded disease. The wife and mother of the family, Mary Eliza, had come down with the illness and passed away on December 8, 1883, and within two years, the eldest daughter, 20-year-old Mary Olive, had also died from the illness. The family would remain untouched by the disease for a few years until 1891, when Edwin became ill with consumption. Mm. So since there were not any actual treatment options available in Exeter, besides some home remedies, Edwin was advised to go to Colorado Springs to increase his chances of recovery. The idea behind this specific treatment plan was that a person might be more likely to recover from the disease if they relocated to a different climate. Mm -hmm. But when he came back in 1892, he was even more ill than he was when he left. Things were not looking good. Mm -hmm. Sadly, around the same time that Edwin was attempting to recover in Colorado, Lena had also come down with consumption and quickly passed away from the disease at the age of 19. The reason that Lena passed away so quickly after she contracted the disease was they believed it was because she suffered from what's called a galloping case of consumption, which basically means that she either had it and was asymptomatic for a long time, or others say a galloping case is just a term for saying that it moved really fast. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because some people would suffer from it for like a long period of time before it would eventually kill them. Yeah. 
So Edwin was not getting better, and the overall panic within the Brown home and the community as a whole led to the extremely bizarre events that would soon follow. The community at large was being slammed with consumption. Hmm. The population of Exeter had plummeted from somewhere around 2,500 people down to 961 people by the time that Lena Brown had passed away. Oh, wow. Yeah, like cut down by thirds. Yeah. Two thirds, you know. And even though the tuberculosis bacteria was actually already discovered by this time, Exeter was a tiny town, and rural areas like Exeter hadn't even heard the news of this discovery yet. Oh, wow. And even if they had, a cure for tuberculosis wouldn't even exist until the 1940s. So it wouldn't even have really mattered all that much. Yeah. 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 So Exeter, Rhode Island was an interesting place at the height of this story. It was an extremely rural town with more rocks than just about anything else. It was purposed as a farm town, but with the stones blocking potential fields and with barely fertile soil, farming wasn't super lucrative. Yeah. Settlers and members of early Exeter worked with what they had, sometimes even planting rows of corn around boulders that were too big to move. Hmm. Farms would begin to be either abandoned or taken by the government and then burned. Wow. Yes. So considering the lives lost in the Civil War and considering that more of the United States was being settled and developed further west, young people felt like staying in Exeter really was just a lost cause. Right, right. So it was not just the tuberculosis that was causing the population decline, but it really did take a toll on the remaining members of the community. Totally. So after Lena's death, Edwin began to decline even further. Mm. Death was imminent. Given the isolation of Exeter, they just didn't have access to education that would allow them to have any legitimate approaches to treat or attempt to cure the illness. Yeah. They, once again, grasped at straws, trying all of the oddball treatments that they could. But once those ran out, all that was left to do was to wait for death to come. Except there was one other thing that they thought maybe they could try. Hmm. Frustrated and afraid of this devastating illness that nobody truly understood, citizens suggested to George Brown that maybe there was something sinister at play. They referenced an old folktale which suggested that this was the work of a vampire. So vampirism in early rural areas of New England was very interesting. The big picture on this belief was that one of the recently deceased family members wasn't fully dead, but rather they'd become a bloodthirsty vampire that feasted on the living tissues and blood of their relatives. Since Lena was the one who was most recently deceased, the blame fell on her. The only way to stop this from continuing until Edwin's demise, and then maybe even George's demise as well, was to exhume her recently buried corpse and check if her heart contained fresh blood. If it did, then she was definitely draining Edwin's blood and feasting on it as a newfound life force for herself. Wow. Yes. If the fresh blood was present, they would need to destroy her corpse. Now, of course, not every single person in rural New England believed in these superstitions. Sure. But George, though he was pretty skeptical, was becoming increasingly convinced that he needed to do this in order to save his only remaining child and direct family member. Hmm. And then she may even continue on with other friends and residents of Exeter and and beyond Hmm. if she wasn't stopped. That was the idea. Yeah. Okay. We need to stop her because she's killing your whole family. Right. Even though she was the most recently deceased and two other (laughs) members of your family. You know what I mean? It's like. A little bit frustrating. It, it, yeah. It's frustrating and it's just one of those like, I feel like grasping at straws is actually the best way of putting it because mm-hmm. that's inevitably what this is, is you're just looking for literally anything. Anything to, to make sense of the yes. senseless. Yes. And that's, I mean, once again, just to use COVID as an example that we all understand, I remember spending at least the first several weeks just constantly up updating my feed and my <clears throat> and checking news sources and yeah. every 40 minutes if I was doing something else I would stop and go and check the news again because mm-hmm. I, I needed to make sense of this mm-hmm. and they didn't they didn't have anything like that to help right. put that together they w- just literally had to grasp at straws yeah so yeah and I mean I remember seeing like people attempting to prevent it in their own home. And we would take some pretty weird measures Mm -hmm. like people panic buying cleaning supplies and sanitizing their groceries that got delivered. Like I remember seeing somebody washing a bag of Doritos. Like we were terrified of it. 
And because we didn't understand yeah. it at all. It's super relatable. Right. That's and where the are, connection is for real. And, and we are light years ahead in medical science. Yeah. And we still reacted like that mm-hmm. because we just didn't understand, let alone the. <laughs> Watching it take your whole family. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's interesting to have that, that context to be able to understand a little bit of what they went through. Mm-hmm. Not to the same degree, but but with the same you know, panic. Yeah. Well, I've heard, I've heard this story many times, um, over the years and I, I don't feel like I've ever really understood it as well as I do now Mm -hmm. considering COVID. Yeah. It's very strange. So anyways, let's talk about the factors that allowed this story and many others like it to take place to begin with. So vampire lore from around the world has been present in different forms across so many cultures throughout history. I'll probably end up doing an entire episode on vampire lore at some point. So for today, I'm not going to get too into it. But for the sake of the story, I'll give you a little bit. Mm -hmm. So in ancient cultures, such as the ancient Mesopotamians, ancient Greeks, and ancient Hebrews, there are stories of demons that would suck the blood of their victims. Mm. They're widely considered as being the earliest version of the vampire. These terrifying beings have been depicted in folk tales, literature, and ancient art of these cultures, and some version of vampires have existed in pretty much every known culture, despite some obvious differences between them. Hmm. The word vampire appeared in Slavic folklore, and the overall belief is that the Slavic and Germanic immigrants to the United States probably brought vampirism as it was known at the time with them during immigration. So skipping ahead a bit in history, we see the vampire legends kind of morph and split. Hmm. In some cultures, they remain as spiritual leeches, and in others, they are full-blooded creatures with the capability of reproducing and the capability of death. Hmm. The long-standing lore of vampires that we are probably most familiar with today, outside of like super modern versions like the Twilight vampires mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and other yeah, TV yeah. and film versions, <laughs> is no doubt the vampire lore coming out of Transylvania, Romania. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened in the 18th century when a pretty concise lore was actually documented and then spread around during the time. Hmm. The long and short of all vampire lore coming from the areas that early settlers in New England would have been most familiar with is the idea that whatever these beings were, living, dead, undead, spiritual, corporeal, or otherwise, Mm -hmm. their main purpose was to extract the life from their victims in order to preserve their own. Wow. This lore would come over to the new world from the old world. And while most people understood that these stories were fictional folk tales, many people were swayed into, you know, kind of filing those stories away and attaching some truth to them, allowing the stories to come to life in moments of extreme, seemingly inexplicable tragedy, such as a disease that appeared Hmm. to be incurable that would wipe out whole families and whole portions of entire villages. Wow. And so, yeah. In, I mean, really, if you think about it, in some way or another, all of this really did lead to the story of the final New England vampire, Mercy Lena Brown. Hmm. She was okay. the last one. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So once he was finally convinced to exhume Lena and check if she was, in fact, sucking the life from her brother from beyond the grave, George approved of trying this. Hmm. From everything that I saw, I don't personally believe that he ever really believed that it would do anything. It's one of those things where I think he wanted it to be true if it meant that he could save his son. Right. But it seems like he had most likely written it off as old world superstition. So on March 17th, 1892, the bodies of his wife and two daughters were exhumed. At this time, family burial sites were very common. Mm -hmm. And so I'm pretty sure that the brown women were all buried in one of those family crypts initially. According to the attending physician and a correspondent from the Providence Journal who came to report on the incident, George was not present for the exhumation. Hmm. A reason was never listed, but like, I mean, I wouldn't want to be there probably, yeah. for something like kind that. Of upsetting. Yeah. yeah, just a little. So many paranoid locals also attended the exhumation. So we got the hmm. doctor, the journalist, and a bunch of villagers. Well, I don't like Plus that the much, men that they brought in to do the exhumation. Yeah. So Due to the fact that Mary Eliza and Mary Olive had both been deceased and in their tombs for almost a decade at this point, they were both very decomposed, meaning there were no organs to test out for vampirism. However, Lena had only been buried for a few months at this point, and a majority of the time that she'd spent buried had been during the winter. 
So her body was still in pretty good shape, all things considered. Mm, okay. So Dr. Harold Metcalf was the doctor who came in and assisted with this whole ordeal. He was a highly educated physician originally from Providence. He discouraged locals from going forward with such a backward old tradition. <laughs> like this is a crazy superstition, guys. Yeah. I can actually explain this to you. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. But eventually... Once George relented, so did Dr. Metcalf. Yeah. He's like, fine, I'm just going to maybe use this as a learning opportunity. Yeah. it's It reminds me a little bit <clears throat> of Parks and Rec. <laughs> <laughs> Ham and mayonnaise. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the residents of Pawnee. <laughs> yeah. Which I, I'm sorry to make light of that. I'm not trying to make fun of, of a culture or a society, but it is one of those like they just... They so like aggressively, we want to do this. And the doctor just said, okay, fine. Let's yeah. just do it. That's, yeah. That's let's fine. just do it then. Yeah. So I think his goal was honestly just to dispel the superstitions and to attempt to keep the vampire panic at bay. He was like doing his civic duty to like stop the wildfire. Yeah. It seems like, hmm. like maybe if I can show these people what I know to be observably true about the human body in a postmortem state, then maybe this bizarre tradition would cease to be. Yeah. So as I said, Mary Eliza and Mary Olive looked like very normal, mostly decomposed corpses. But Lena, due to being preserved because of being buried in the winter, was in remarkably good condition. Mm -hmm. Dr. Metcalf explained this to the townspeople that were instantly riled up by Lena's appearance. Mm -hmm. He told them that when it's cold, it delays decomposition significantly. But this was not enough for them. <laughs> they wanted to see the vampire expulsion method through to the very end. And so that's what they did. Wow. I suppose this might warrant a content warning. So I'm going to explain something that will seem pretty barbaric and gruesome to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. These kinds of things are so unheard of today. And so if you're squeamish, then maybe skip forward a minute or two. So the doctor performed a sort of impromptu autopsy, explaining his findings as he went. He was able to dissect the lungs, which showed obvious signs of tuberculous germs, which means she definitely had tuberculosis. Yeah. He explained that to them. Yeah. He explained what he knew about the illness at that point, but this did nothing to calm the agitated villagers. Mm. When blood was discovered in her heart and liver, that was all the Exeter citizens needed. Wow. Mercy Lena Brown was a vampire, and she was the one responsible for the epidemic of death in the town. All of Dr. Metcalf's medical explanations did nothing to diffuse the situation, and so the citizens removed Lena's heart and liver, and they took them to a rock. They burned the organs on a rock until there was nothing left but ashes. Hmm. Before placing Lena's body back into her tomb, some reports say that a townsperson decapitated her corpse. Oh. That would be the only way to truly stop her. So the ashes from her heart and liver were mixed with water and then given to her brother, Edwin, to drink. Oh. They truly believed that this would cure him and end the vampire epidemic once and for all. Why would they? <sighs> where did that come from? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Within about two months, Edwin Brown would pass away from tuberculosis. Yeah. So George Brown would live until 1922. Wow. Seemingly escaping the disease for himself. Descendants of the Brown family do still live in the Exeter area and are buried on Chestnut Hill, where Lena and the rest of her family were ultimately laid to rest. Mm -hmm. People still visit Lena's grave today, leaving her trinkets and notes from things like plastic vampire teeth, cough drops, <laughs> a butterfly necklace, flowers, and a note that someone left that reads, You go, girl. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> There's, a, there's like a little camp to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You go, girl. So I'd mentioned that Mercy Lena Brown was considered the last vampire in New England, and that's mm -hmm. true. Lena's case was the final documented one before the vampire panic settled down in the region. Well, because she was taken care of, obviously. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, and if you think why. about it, it's late 1800s. Yeah. And for the most part, culturally, cities are now... Like they're able to spread more information to mm -hmm. more rural areas that had previously been kind of cut off from sure. like major updates. Sure. And so, you know, this was a huge news story that these crazy people in Exeter were doing this. Wow. So the 1890s. Yeah. Sure. It's almost 1900. Yeah. And so it's almost like there was like two camps of people, mm -hmm. like not quite caught up and getting caught up significantly and swiftly. Yeah. 
and they weren't at war in any way, but they were struggling to relate to each other. Yeah. And so, yeah, she was considered the last one documented. Thank the Lord that that was it. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, that's it. It's crazy. It's honestly, I think what's the craziest for me to think about is that this was less than 150 years ago. I know this was the kind of thing. And like you said, there were people that were already educated that Mm -hmm. were trying to pass that information along, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) trying to educate (laughs) a mob is not necessarily going to bring you a whole lot of success. Right. So yeah, it's crazy to me to think about that. They would be just so willing to do something. And it, Honestly, you're telling me this as you're telling me this part of the story, it that that just saddens me. Yeah. It makes me like they did what to her body and they made her brother do what? And yeah. Yeah. That just that brings me like a lot more of a sense of like sadness than, than anything else. Yeah. Like I don't want to I it makes me feel bad for making a joke about mm-hmm. like comparing them to Pawnee, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> like, but at the same time it's the fictional Pawnee, Indiana. Right. But at the same time, it's like, well, like there is just a degree of like, that's kind of the point is we're, we're, we're pulling out these sorts of moments in time that sounds so crazy, but it, it also isn't that crazy. We experience it all the time. It just mm-hmm. looks a little different now. I feel like Dr. Metcalf's plight was like a metaphor for what was happening in the whole region at large. Yeah. Like he was coming in with procedures that he'd studied. He was learning the ins and outs of tuberculosis at the time. Yeah. There were a lot of things that he was, you know, able to sort of offer to the Exeter citizens that were accurate Mm -hmm. or at least heading towards accurate, you know, and they just were not willing to hear it. It feels like a metaphor for the whole time at large, you know. So news outlets went nuts with this story. It's one thing for this sort of event to occur in the 1700s or earlier, but it was only a few short years before the 1900s began, you know, at the time that the story took place. Right. So with all of the advancements that were being made, it's baffling that this whole thing played out the way that it did. Mm-hmm. While Lena's case was far from the only one like it, hers seemed to have stuck differently. Hmm. It remained in public conversation in various ways and even ended up being referenced in pop culture. From H.P. Lovecraft's The Shunned House, in which he named a character Mercy, after Mercy Brown, and he kind of weaves the Exeter culture into his own bizarre version of the story, where dead relatives stalk their living family members. Wow. Uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the vampire novel, is another one worth mentioning. So when Stoker died, certain things of his were auctioned off, and among those things was a collection of resources that he'd used to write the Dracula story. In those resources were news clippings featuring Mercy Brown's story. Hmm. You also see the character of Lucy, who is a teenage girl that seems like she's succumbing to consumption. She turns into a vampire and her body is exhumed with a medical doctor present, Hmm. which is a dead ringer for Lena's story. It kind of blows my mind that it stuck so differently. Yeah, people had heard this story and it was so memorable that they, they used it in their own stories. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So the culture in the region remains intrigued and influenced by vampires even to this day. The books that I read for today's story are both written by authors who are fully immersed in the culture, the folklore, the legends, and all of that. Hmm. And they have spent parts of their careers doing things like going to schools to educate kids about the history of New England vampires, or they'll join in on these tours called legend trips, hmm. which are basically tours of cemeteries that seek to be Like for people that are seeking to be thrilled and spooked by the vampires of the past. Yeah. And they'll like hop in on these tours. And then when people are like freaking out about a specific thing, like the, the rumor was grass doesn't grow over the grave of a vampire. Hmm. Well, he would, one of the guys would say stuff like, well, you're walking over the same one that you think belongs to a vampire and you're stomping out any chance for grass to regrow there when you do that. Right. (laughs) right. Like that kind of thing. So like a little bit of a killjoy, but like necessary. Yes. (laughs) So today, many people claim that Lena still lives and moves about. She's said to speak in the cemetery, her voice allegedly being caught on audio recordings. Hmm. She'll also appear on a certain bridge, the smell of roses permeating the air where she appears. 
And there's actually a quilt still intact that Lena had made when she was alive. Wow. It's said that if anyone sleeps under the quilt, they will surely die. Hmm. Yeah. In any case, the vampire, perhaps one of the single most long-standing fixtures in global folklore, still lives today in stories passed down through generations, in adaptations in film, TV, literature, and more. And it seems to me, at least, that vampires will never truly die. The books that I used for today's story are really, really good. They're full of historical records, excerpts from news articles, interviews with historians, folklorists, anthropologists, etc. Mm -hmm. And they paint a much fuller picture of the New England vampire panic than I ever could. So go pick up A History of Vampires in New England by Thomas D'Agostino and Food for the Dead on the Trail of the New England Vampires by Michael E. Bell. These guys are the real deal and the books are worth your time. And that is what I have for you today. Wow. This story, I, f I feel like it's just as much a story about a disease as it is about Lena and vampires and New England. It's mm -hmm. And psychology and, and psych sociology. Yes. It's like there's yes. so many layers to this. And that's why I called it like a story within a story within some more stories. Right. Right. Because really there are so many things that had to have happened just as they did mm -hmm. in order for Lena's body to have undergone what she went through. Yeah. You know, it's, it's for so, it to happen this way. Yeah. We've got thousands and thousands of years of disease study, uh, folklore, mm -hmm. all this stuff, all kind of mingling. Yes. All at the same time. Yeah. And, and, uh, the development of information, mm -hmm. uh, how we pass it. Yeah. yeah. Getting, getting all that. There's so many things that on the brink of the night uh, of the 20th century. And I think if I remember right, of course I'm not a historian and all that, but I remember not right. There was a lot, there were just as many advances happening, if not more from, you know, the late 1800s and early 1900s mm -hmm. as there were from, this most recent century mark that we made. There were a lot. Ago. I mean, if it wasn't like, like dead on numbers wise of the amount of advancements, it's yeah. close. You I know? think of like the airplane. <laughs> yeah. I think of, uh, boats like the Titanic, which safety I mean, standards. Yeah. All there's, there's yeah. just a lot that happened right around there. Mm -hmm. And, and yet we are so far into human history. Yeah. <laughs> it took, it took that long to get there. Yeah. And yeah, that's just kind of mind blowing to me to think that was like a, just kind of a melting pot of all those things coming together. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. It is just really interesting. I thought that this was like an, a very fascinating kind of snapshot of history that it just made, I don't know. It, there's something very moving and humbling yeah. about this story. Yeah. About like the condition of being a person, yeah. regardless of the time that you're from. It is so very interesting. And, and yeah, I think humbling is a great way of putting it because mm -hmm. there's at that point in time, they also thought that they were on the very top of the mountain of knowledge and information. Mm -hmm. Well, and so do we. And that's the funny exactly, thing. Exactly. That's what I'm getting at is they were so far away mm -hmm. and we think we're at the very top of all things we could possibly know. And we're still probably so far away. Yeah. Like just, just to think about that is kind of mind blowing, but. And it's humbling. That's, that's why I chose that word. You yeah. hit the nail on the head with it. You definitely hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Some things never change. Some things never stop changing. Wow. I know. I know. Am poet. Am poet. That's actually not <laughs> what I was trying to say. I was going to say something different. I'm going to cut that. <laughs> no, don't. Don't cut it. That was so good. Am philosophizer. Am me philosophizing. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. I'm going to call this one a hard unusual. Yeah. Lots of, there was unsavory moments uh, and unsettling moments, but this one just really all the unusualness of everything being unusual together really kind of. <laughs> That's a pretty, whole soup of unusual. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm going to call it for this yeah, one. I agree. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure that you are subscribed on your favorite listening platform and you leave a five-star review as well. Um, those help other people to find the podcast. 
Also, make sure that you're following us on social media at This One Is A Doozy on Instagram and TikTok and on Facebook, This One's A Doozy Podcast. You can also email us with suggestions of stories um, and your own personal stories. This one is a doozy at gmail.com. With that, we will see you next time for another doozy. Thanks, guys. Bye.